When I look back on some of the times that I cherish the most as an entrepreneur, it's not when everything was working, it was when everything wasn't working. Because you had to be in the moment. You were committed. The time would not slow down enough as opposed to it wouldn't go fast enough. Hey everyone, I'm Mark Randolph and welcome to That Will Never Work. I've been an entrepreneur for a long time. Netflix, which I co-founded, it was actually my fifth startup. And since leaving there, I've had the opportunity to work with scores of early stage companies and talk to thousands of aspiring entrepreneurs from all over the world. On this podcast, I speak with folks who are at every stage of building their own businesses, whether they're leaping from side hustle to self-employed or are already generating revenue and ready to take things to the next level. My goal is to draw out their biggest challenges and then try to nudge them a little further down the path toward realizing their dreams. If you've been told that will never work as much as I have, you've come to the right place. Together, we'll prove the naysayers wrong. Today's show is a little different. Joe and his childhood friend have built a company, 12 Traits, that's found an interesting niche. They use AI to provide behavioral insights to help gaming companies find and retain more users. Joe, whose background includes clinical psychology as well as marketing, is now looking inward and focused on creating the sort of company culture that attracts the very best employees. Fortunately, my experience at Netflix has given me some insights and some strong opinions about how Joe might be able to use his corporate culture to take 12 traits to the next level. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining me. I'm kind of looking forward to the conversation, but I think the way the best way to start is I'd love for you to spend just a little bit of time kind of filling me in on what you're doing and maybe what you're struggling with. Sure. Yeah. 12 traits. What we set out to do is basically build the world's biggest and most powerful empathy engine. So my whole background is in clinical psychology and marketing and advertising. My whole career has been based around really deeply understanding customers and just creating incredible experiences for them. Historically speaking, a lot of that has been done through behavior data, what people do, what people click, etc. Behavior is a part of who we are as human beings, but it's not the whole picture. So the psychological aspect, what we're doing in scaling at 12 Trades is we work with most major game companies in the world. And we have an AI that as people play these games, we anonymously are able to do uh, full psychological assessments on audiences and to allow game companies basically to create better experiences for their people. So if they're sluggish on their trigger finger, it means they're depressed, that sort of thing. Or if basically in Fortnite, they go, I'm just going to stay here in this little building safe and sound, that means they're anxious. We're moving towards that reality. You know, we're not totally there yet, but yeah, it's definitely something like that. Plato said something like, if you know, play a game with a person for a day, you can learn more about them than if you work for them for a year. So there's something about when we play that's innately human. Um, we learn through play as apes, as primates. And so a lot of the masks drop that are in other platforms. So yeah, that's kind of what we're, what we're doing. Wow. And how long have you been doing this for? So 12 Traits has been around for three years now. So it's founded about three years ago, last uh, January 2018. Personally, I've been on this mission since I was in a neuroscience lab at the University of Wisconsin, trying to figure out how do we make interfaces healthier for people? How does it become a lot more like skiing is maybe in my life compared to, for example, um, Facebook at the time? Uh, how do we move the digital world into a place where digital realities can be healthier for people and also better for businesses too? 
I assume you didn't do this on your own. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Are you the CEO? I am the CEO. Yeah. So tell me about this company. How many people are there? Do you have co-founders or the other people who are carrying this load with you? Yeah. So I have another co-founder, Bastian. We got to know each other. He came to Minnesota when he was 16 years old to play hockey. So we've known each other since forever. And then we're about 11 people. So pretty small company. And we're just finishing our signing our docs off on our Series A right now. So that's kind of where we're at as a phase. And we work with most of the major game companies in the world at this point. Wow, that sounds pretty exciting. So what's the problem? Sounds like things are going great. Yeah, things are. And one of the things that when I first heard about you and, and your story, I had this background, this other part of me where I used to ski for the North Face. I'm a wilderness first responder, so spent a lot of time with Knowles and all that good stuff. And so resonated a lot with your background and parts of your book when you write about being closer to, to Santa Cruz, for example, or being able to take time to be in the, the mountains. Or I think that's how you met your wife anyway, too. Yep. One of the things that I think is not talking about a lot. There's a lot of resources on scaling revenue, the business side of things, but we forget about a lot of times ourselves and the, I guess, the biocycle social parts and being a whole person. I went through your profile as maybe like three years ago when we started this. I said, here's a guy who has a lot in common with me outside of just in terms of interests, you know, outside of what the core competencies are within in a business. And so the main question is, we're hitting different phases in the company right now. We're growing fast. Things are happening quickly. There's a lot of things that are not talked about with businesses. Things like imposter syndrome for founders, things like founders depression, the amount of time you have to dedicate towards scaling a business. In your book, I think you talked a little bit about the date nights you had on Tuesdays with your wife. That really resonated with me. But the big question is, how does one ensure that they're not just from a skill set within a company, but able to... Startups take everything, especially in the early days. How do you scale yourself as a person with the company as it scales or goes into hypergrowth? Wow. Well, those are certainly the right question. And it does sound like your own empathy engine would be able to tell that even though things are really, really going well, you're kind of going then, why am I kind of stressed out now? And why aren't I uh, as happy as I was back when I was a graduate student? If you were in fact happy as a graduate student. It's interesting. I'm no expert because for me, it certainly was an audience of one. I just knew that I had to figure it out for myself. And I think I had a little bit of an advantage in that at least by the time I was doing Netflix, you know, I was 38, I was older, and I'd already kind of been through this burnout phase that kind of ended when I turned 30. I don't know what would have happened if I had not had the burnout phase. In other words, there's this kind of constant tension, and you, you know you know these things, but the constant tension in life between, I know that if I do nothing but work for my entire life, then I'm going to end up being perhaps wealthy and successful, but 70 years old and unable, when I can finally have time to do things, I'm unable to do anything. But on the other hand, you go... Well, I have lots of friends who basically live in the back of their sprinter van, working rafting companies in the summer and doing ski patrol in the winter. I'm not sure how scalable and repeatable that is as a model, especially when all of a sudden you want to begin having kids, settling down and having some sort of, believe me, I feel that tension too. And I was lucky that I was able to get some of those things out of my system. I worked like a dog until I was 30, where I had almost no balance. But luckily, that's kind of where I began to realize I didn't like this, that I needed some of the other things in my life for this to be worth doing. I know I needed the outdoors piece of it. I mean, for me, I am not whole 
unless I'm able to get outside and do something challenging or exhilarating or dangerous or hopefully all three. Um, and I'm certainly not whole if I don't have a chance to spend time with my wife and my family. And even that's not entirely a selfish endeavor. A lot of the things you do for your family and your wife are not necessarily things that are particularly enjoyable, but that's what it requires to maintain a stable long-term relationship. In other words, I kind of realized I had to figure this out. The hard part for me, and this may not have even come across in the book so much, is I really realized I couldn't do all three of them really well, that it was simply not possible to run and grow a startup and stay connected to my wife and my family and get out and spend, uh, you know, two weeks canoeing the no attack canyons. I mean, those are not things you can squeeze in between your one and two o'clock calls. And quite frankly, I said, what's going to suffer is I'm going to have to make the third priority, the outdoor stuff. And there was a period where I basically had to cancel my subscription to Outside Magazine just because it was simply too painful sometimes to leaf through that and see what all the other people were doing that I wasn't getting a chance to. I mean, I shifted my focus. I did move to sports that I could do between my one and two o'clock meeting or figuratively. I mean, I realized it was possible to get up at 4.30 or five o'clock in the morning, drive in the dark over to Pleasure Point and get out and surf for an hour and a half and be out of the water and in the office by 7.30 or eight o'clock. And the only big downside to that was all of a sudden when my sinus cavities decided Decided to empty themselves of seawater right in the middle of a meeting at like 1130. I had to begin doing things like doing the trail running, which I could do after work or biking, which I could do at lunch. But the key to all these things, and again, these are not novel ideas, but it's just to reinforce the fact that these non-novel ideas are actually hugely effective, was almost everything was planned. I really lost some of the spontaneity. That was probably what suffered the most, that I could not be like a typical Santa Cruz native where when the swells up, well, you just leave. <laughs> that didn't quite work as well for me. I had to begin blocking things out. And you know, of course, as I described in the book, I had to block out the leaving Tuesdays at five o'clock. But that really meant I couldn't necessarily leave easily on Thursday at five o'clock because that had been booked two or three weeks in advance for something else. And it all was hard. But I guess here's the insight. Here's the story. And this may have been in the book. I really can't remember to the truth. But, you know, I was living in Europe um, for a year and I was working with the European offices of a big software company. And I was traveling four days a week, day trips to the different offices. One day I'd fly to Milan. The next day I'd be flying up to Copenhagen. And then I'd be flying to the UK. So I was on planes eight times a week, constantly. And of course, stuff was late and I'm running for planes. The interesting thing was I kind of realized it, didn't make a difference very often. That almost every time I ran for a plane, one of two things happened. Either I'd get there and the doors were already closed, that even the running for the plane didn't make the difference. Or I'd get there and they, the plane was delayed and I'd run for nothing. And the time it made the difference was probably once or maybe twice in the whole year. And the analogy is that I found, at least at Netflix, that that was the case there. That there was this feeling I had especially as CEO, but even when I was the president and running big parts of the company, that I needed to have my hand be in everything. That unless it had my level of obsession and perfectionism, or if I thought that I was better suited to do something than the person do it, that it had to be done right. And eventually I kind of realized, quite frankly, it's not true. 
I'm not saying it's not true that I couldn't have done it better or that I couldn't have beaten someone up if I had a chance to approve something before it went out. I'm just saying the amount of times that the difference between the work product that existed and the one that might have existed never made a difference. It never was the reason we didn't get the deal. It never was the reason that something fell apart. It never was fundamentally the A-B test that would have transformed the business if we had only tested that one thing. And I kind of realized that it was okay. That was really this big insight for me. And I guess I, the lucky part was that I figured that, how old are you now, by the way? I'm 35. Yeah, you're kind of right at that point where you, you go, wow, there's more to it than this, <laughs> just the, the working piece. But I guess all I can say is that first of all, yes, there is sacrifice. There will be things you won't be able to do. But the more important one is that don't tell anybody, but the business will not fall apart if you slip out at two o'clock to go do something uh, in the outdoors to make you whole. I read something really interesting today as part of a longer article. They were really saying that it would almost without exception benefit people if they took one day a week and didn't do anything except think. But of course, most people have bosses who, if they saw this person just sitting there thinking all day, would think something was seriously wrong with them. And then most of us who maybe are the supervisor or the boss go, what would everyone think if they just saw me sitting there and thinking? I can put the time I spend off with my wife or the time I would spend out biking or skiing or running or surfing in the thinking category. Because as you kind of know, that moment of taking your mind off of the constant wrestling of the problem allows it to process in the back. Well, you're the neuropsychologist. You, you know that better than I do. Allows it to process in the background. And lo and behold, this idea which you've been struggling with for uh, weeks all of a sudden presents itself when you're not even trying. Yeah, absolutely. So before doing this, I was at McCann Erickson doing the advertising stuff. And I know that's a part of your lineage too that you talk about in the book. That's right. Okay, you got the Freud thing going on and then the whole, you know, that background. And I was like, okay, so we have the, the psychology and the marketing in our blood here. But I was an adventure-based psychotherapist actually while I was also a UX director at McCann. In therapy, we have this thing called kinesthetic metaphor, which when you're out skiing, when you're out surfing, what are those ideas that happen and how they relate to the physicality of the natural involvement in nature that you're with, and they spontaneously happen. And they're these higher order kind of ideas and things and how important that is. And I know it, it applies to me in business for sure, where some of the best times I'm processing is absolutely when out in the outdoors. I think Bill Gates said at some point, he realized that sleep was important. At first he said, it, he thought he was being lazy. And then he said, no, no, it's actually important. And the second was, I think he would have his think weeks uh, where he would say, I'm taking a week just to think. You know, Early on in, in the phases a startup goes through, there's moments where I remember I, I went on a vacation with my girlfriend to Capri and we said, we're going to take three days. And I said, I'm going to block it out, go for two days. And then I came back and I was like, okay, there's a lot of stuff off the rails that we got to get back on the rails now. We're now we're a little bit later. We have a bigger team. We're scaling. Um, a lot of it is automated. So we're never going to have to have probably a massive team because um, a lot of it's AI-based. But we're at that phase now where I'm realizing, okay, I'm growing with the business. But it's also with a lot of the early employees we have, and I'd love your take on this too, because it's not just about me, but it's about the team. And the team that we were able to bring in early on, like they're incredible. We have some of just the brightest and best minds in the space that we're in. But you hire people early on because I think you mentioned this with one of the individuals in, in your book who ended up becoming... He wanted to be the CFO, I think, or something like that. But you said, we're not going to give you that 
position yet, or you, know, you had an idea of who he was. And we had some people who are amazing generalists early on, and they're such important employees. And now we're saying, okay, there's lead roles, there's VP roles, there's director roles that are coming into account. If those people are growing with the business, they're so core and foundational to the company. How do you also manage that where you help some of these people that they were with you for those early years, you know, neck and neck. And then now that you're expanding and growing so fast, how do you reconcile what is the job that needs to be done and that we need to hire for versus the individual and where they're at in terms of their own growth and that kind of stuff too? Wow. Well, welcome to the big leagues. That's one of the hardest things. The reality is that you hired people for the job they have to do today, and that job's not going to exist if you're growing and doing a good job in a year or in two years. And there's no guarantees in startup that you get to keep those jobs automatically or that you owe everybody a career path. It's kind of contrary in thinking because I think most people believe that's the important thing you owe to your team. And I think that's ridiculous. What you owe to them is to give them the freedom to solve really interesting problems, provided they're capable of solving them, and provided those are problems that need to get solved for the business. But it's a reality that as a company scales, it is changing dramatically. And that doesn't just apply to the other 11 people in the company. It applies to you, that you have demonstrated that you have the skills required when a company was three people or zero people helping to conceptualize what this should be and navigating it from the crazy idea that everyone thought wouldn't work through to a prototype, which was actually getting some traction, through to getting your first funding. You've been great, but your job's going to change dramatically once you get the Series A because without even, I can't quite read it over your shoulder there, but I'm gathering it plans for additional hiring. Um, it probably plans for additional markets or additional areas to go into, and your job's going to change. And you have to be able to demonstrate that you can now do a job that you've never done before that's totally different. But the same thing goes for everybody else. But it's part of the most difficult, painful thing of a startup. Because you're right. I've been there. You convinced that person to come take this job. They left a high-paying job someplace else. That you, Your benefits are not as good. You're making them work longer hours but you're offering them other things, which is this thrill of being part of a startup. But if what you need is not what they're capable of doing, your first obligation is to the company. Or let me say it this way, before you sign those documents, which you're just about to sign, you better make sure you're okay with that because it is completely acceptable to run a lifestyle business where your employees are a family and you're going to take care of each other and you don't want the complexities of getting bigger and more sophisticated. But once you take that money, they're not giving you that money because they like you. They're not giving you that money because we'd like to see you change the world. They want that money back and ideally times 100. And that's your responsibility. And your responsibility is you have to now put in place the right people to make that happen. And there's the, that one person on the team who you go, gosh, this person is a good friend and they've sacrificed and they've done everything I've asked, but they're not the right person for this next level. Your job is not to make them happy. It's to make the other 10 people on the team who are counting on you to make these stock options worth something. And by holding on to someone who's not the most effective person, you might be doing a good deed for that one person, but the other nine people are looking at you going, you're letting us down you're still going to go, this sucks. And you're going to go home the day you have to tell this person that and just feel like crap for a long time. But that's what you kind of tell yourself to go, 
fundamentally, that's why this job is so hard is because you have to do things like that. And I hate to break it to you. You're going to have to keep on doing them. It's the nature of doing what's right, which sometimes hurts people. That's the tricky part is I think, you know, from the ethos that we have is, you know, how do you help technology become more self-aware in an ethical way, be healthier for other people. We have that internally too. So it's a very much mental health adulting. How do you help people move towards their fullest potential type business? And when a lot of these people, you've, you've had past jobs with them, you've worked with them, you brought them over. It's one of those hard thing about hard things type deals. So it's definitely on our horizon. What was some of your things? Was there an inflection point or a situation where you realized... Netflix is about to start to go into hyper growth. Netflix is really going to take off. Who do I need to become to be the person that is going to be, you know, exactly what you said, the right person for the job? Or what are the, some of the things that I need to do to prepare for that? Was it working with certain advisors? Were there certain individuals that were paramount for you in that process? Were there certain things you did to educate yourself or learn or continue to evolve to be the right person for Netflix? And was there ever a time, maybe as a second part, where you realized maybe I'm not that person anymore and that somebody else to step in? Because that's also, I think, a hard moment too. You know, I mentioned that I didn't do Netflix till I was 38. And Netflix was the sixth startup I had been a part of. So a lot of these lessons were ones that I learned previously. And you certainly learn new things at Netflix. Nothing's ever the same. But it wasn't like I had to solve every problem at once. I'd certainly worked out a lot of the culture issues of what I really enjoyed doing, how I like to behave, how I like to treat people, how I wanted them to treat each other. The issue of the tough love piece, I knew that well before I got to Netflix when I was pretty driven to make certain things happen and just realized having someone on the team who couldn't do it was not about them. It was my obligation to everybody else. Those things came earlier. The biggest thing probably that forced so much growth at Netflix was the fact that I was not by myself, that Reed and I were partners in this. Reed and I, and this is not an analogy that I came up with, so do not wince, but it's really kind of a Lennon and McCartney thing. Not that I compare myself to Lennon and McCartney, but um, it's that I'm in some ways overly empathetic. What made me as powerfully good as a marketing person is my empathy, my ability to recognize how people are going to respond to things I say or do or write or price or terms. But that makes it really, really hard for me to deliver bad news to people. Reed is extremely analytical sees things extremely clearly in all the intricate connections between them. And if all the Beatles music was all Lennon, you'd slit your wrist. It was all McCartney. You'd be going, oh, it's so syrupy sweet. And that's what makes it work with Reed and I, is we found the balance between those two poles. And I think a lot of that culture came from that. It makes a lot of sense. One of the things that when you hear about Netflix, like, I mean, I grew up knowing that Netflix was a company and like, I grew up in the days where I was like, wow, uh, okay, Hollywood videos, not the best option anymore. And it, it became something that just all of a sudden Netflix was there. And even when I was young, like in high school growing up, and you'd hear things like there's this culture there, or there's this really important aspect of how people feel when they get into the company. And Netflix was used as a, as a model for that. And I really appreciated one thing you wrote about transparency around from Knowles, from taking what it's like to be 
out backpacking or understanding navigation or basically landmarks and how you do that stuff. And a lot of what you brought from the outdoors and from that world into how you set things up there. Today, we're in a very different world where we have COVID, we're all online. And so what I've had to ask of employees over the last month, I think a lot of our six months, nine months, it's very different before we were all you know socially distanced and all these kind of things. My question around that is when you're creating a culture. And I think you mentioned specifically, um, culture is something that you do. It's not uh, something that's on paper that you write down. What are some things there with to move? Because we're accommodating for a fast growing thing that's going to be adapting and changing. There's new people coming in. And I always say, if people don't feel that when they come in, the new people that come in are going to be the ones that define it. So from your perspective, what were some of the things that allowed Netflix to in one hand, create this place where, yeah, people are treated as adults, et cetera, et cetera, but really allow for that growth and to keep that at the same time. It speaks to the point in the book where you're talking about the hot tub and people kind of talking, just not happy about the where they were working at every perk viable. Kind of the theme of, of this is there's this growth happening, whether it's individual or a company is kind of like an organism too. How did you maintain or keep that as the company grew? There's elements of luck in everything, you know, what strategy you do, what you try, what you test, what market you go into, but certainly culture has lucky aspects too. And that bet that we made, somewhat informed by that incident with the hot tub, where you begin to ask yourself, why does everyone want to come to work? That's clearly not the hot tubs and the foosball tables and fireman poles. But it was that bet that the thing that really attracts great people is being given that freedom and responsibility. That just worked remarkably well. And that was the core that we built everything around. Almost all of the cultural discussions are about how do you make that real? What does that really mean? What are we doing now that's getting in the way if we truly want to walk the walk and talk the talk about giving our employees freedom and responsibility? Because that's what led to decisions to say, okay, there's no vacation policy. There's no expense policy. It's not that we said, I wonder if there's a new way to do expenses. It was really asking ourselves, what are we doing, which is taking away freedom and responsibility from the employees and saying, well, there's an easy thing to get rid of. But what it turns out is that when you actually are putting in place these programs to put freedom and responsibility in the hands of the employees, it has huge benefits. And one, of course, is customer satisfaction. Number two is you're putting in place all these tools that allow people to really make informed decisions and judgments on their own, which means that people who they're supervising watch that and they implant that on them as opposed to having one thing which the leadership is saying and doing, which is a different thing. In other words, if your culture was all decisions come from the top, well, that's something you can certainly demonstrate is true, but no one else gets to do it except for the top. But if you say the culture is that every person should be empowered to make their own decisions, that gets pushed way, 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 way down. So it has a bunch of benefits. One is that when people come in, they feel that. And when their people are managed and supervised and told how they're doing, they're being judged on that. It also has the benefit, as you said, when you come into a COVID time, all of a sudden, when people can't communicate as easily, when you can't walk next door, when you can't bump into someone in the hallway, it doesn't make a difference. You've set up a system which is already about empowering people to act independently without requiring all that feedback. And now here, drawing this thing full circle, going back to the original premise of the conversation is, I'm going to interpret it some, how do I get out of the office every now and then and keep my sanity? That works amazingly well when you're not required to be there 
for every decision the company makes. And I'll give you two quick examples of that one, and then I'll, I'll stop. So one is that at Netflix now, a manager's job is extremely straightforward. It's only two things. A manager's job is, are the right people in the right seats? So, which is the hiring and the firing. And do you have the right people here? That's the big one. And then the second one is, am I giving all of them the information, the context to make informed decisions? Do they know what our objectives are as a company? Do they know what our competition is doing? Do they know what's working and not working in the company? Are they empowered? It is not making decisions. It is not checking decisions. And the second piece to that is that Reed measures himself on how long can he go between having to make a decision. And it's measured in weeks and how long he goes between decisions, which means he does not need necessarily to be in the office every day, every minute. And it's a lesson that I think all of us can aspire to. It's powerful and it speaks to a lot of autonomy and things that people are as human beings naturally motivated by. Uh, makes makes a ton of ton of sense. And so I guess, are there any times where that ever bit you in the ass? Is there? <laughs> uh, of course, but only because you're trying things. I mean, believe me, when Netflix said, what would happen if we didn't do reviews? I mean, people go nuts. What happens if we just don't put anyone on a plan? We just say time to leave. The lawyers go crazy with that stuff. What happens if we disclose everyone's salaries? <laughs> what happens if we ask people to um, go out and get job offers so we can have a really truly informed sense of what their market value is so we can pay them adequately? Believe me, people freak out at those things. So the only way to figure out whether they're going to work or not is to try them with the recognition that if it doesn't work, well, then we'll put back in place having to do expense reports and having expense guidelines and having travel policies. But lo and behold, all the stuff the lawyers worry about, all the stuff everyone, we're going to get sued. You don't. But your question is, does it bite you in the ass? Yes, of course it bites you in the ass. And you go, ow, damn it. All right, next. You didn't die. You just got a bit ass. Absolutely. From where you're at now, as a, I guess, evolution as a person, what do you think some of the most worthwhile aspects of entrepreneurship are, of founding businesses are? Because you obviously have it in your blood. It's not going to go away. What makes it worthwhile? This is awesome. This is kind of like the Joe podcast. I'm like uh, getting a chance to kind of pontificate about stuff with you kind of like feeding me nice little nugget lines here. But so thank you. Thank you for that. I gotcha. And so the question really is what makes it worthwhile or what's the one thing to do right to be able to do this? Maybe we can turn it into two part. Yeah, because you know, you I think you talk a little bit in your book about well, there's going to be sacrifice and, you know, go into, you know, even when Reed said, you know, I'll do the million or the one point, whatever. Yeah. And you're going, okay, well, I'm going to be putting my time in. So you kind of go through these things and you've been an entrepreneur all the way up till, you know, your forties and say, I'm going to go again. It's a very specific path in life. There's a quote from Elon Musk somewhere where a young kid asks him, what should I do to be an entrepreneur? And I think Elon says, don't. <laughs> and if you still do it, then maybe it's something you could think about. Yeah. And I love that because not everybody that I meet who's been a founder, some people that I meet, it's like this was the only path almost. Where part of what I love about your background is you're a whole person too. And we try to hire whole people uh, at 12 Traits, not someone who's like, I just do this thing. And that's everything that that I do. It's 
what else are you passionate about? What do you love to do? Because they're going to bring that into the office and that's going to spark a lot of things. And I, I think one of the things I appreciate about your background is you are a whole person and you bring a lot of different passions into what you're doing. So you are making, you know, do we, do we stay closer to work or do we go outside in the country and get a bigger place to live? What are these options? So yeah, the two part is what is the entrepreneurial journey? What makes it all worthwhile in growing and adapting through that system? Because you could say, you know what, I really like this phase of the company, or I really like who I am right now. And this is a sweet spot. I'm going to stay here. But you didn't. And then the second part is maybe that. All right. So listen, the perfect way to tie this all up with you is I'll use a rock climbing analogy. There's two aspects, in my opinion, to climbing. Actually, let's say there's three of them. All right. One thing of the reason I love climbing is it's a puzzle. I mean, you're looking at a route, you're halfway up a route, and you're always trying to figure out your way through it. The things that were extremely challenging to you when you were eight years old or when you're just a beginner, they're trivial later on. The things you find yourself capable of doing as you uh, get better and more experienced become more and more sophisticated. And so as you climb, you begin advancing through the grades, not just grades of difficulty, but through grades of exposure for length, for climate. The climbing gets harder and harder, but it's still about this challenge of, can I solve this problem? you can see the direct analogy to what goes on in an entrepreneur. The stuff you start at the very beginning, you know, I was selling seeds door to door. And now, of course, that's ridiculous. But little by little, the business challenges you take on need to be harder. They need to be more complex. They involve more people. They have more financial commitment. But it's the same thing. You're just pushing yourself to solve a really cool problem. The second thing about climbing is that there are moments of terror. There are moments of completely in the moment because you are at the edge. And I'm sure as an extreme skier, it's the exact same thing. But many, many of these sports, and for me, that's a lot of it. You're mountain biking down something right at the edge of your ability. You're kayaking in some extreme whitewater. You are thinking about nothing, but holy shit, how am I going to get out of this? And it is not a pleasant feeling, but in retrospect, it's a remarkable feeling of the flow that comes from being completely focused on a survival thing. And that there's elements when I look back on some of the times that I cherish the most as an entrepreneur, it's not when everything was working, it was when everything wasn't working because you had to be in the moment. You were committed. The time would not slow down enough as opposed to it wouldn't go fast enough. And so the third element of rock climbing is you get to some remarkable places. There's a lot of times you are on a ledge and you are looking around and going, holy shit, I cannot believe I'm here. This is magnificent. And there's aspects of entrepreneurship which are like that as well, where you find yourself places and you go, how did this happen? And boy, that stuff keeps happening now because of a lot of the Netflix things for me where I, I meet people or I get to do things and I go, this is remarkable. So, you know, all those things. But the key to it is I never got into this for some objective. I never said I want to be famous. I never said I want to be rich. I never said any of that crap. The motivation was just always this pure feeling of I love solving problems. I love the fact that sometimes this is really hard, existentially hard sometimes. And wow, it's kind of cool creating something. So I guess the meta is be in this for the right reasons.
Because if you are, no matter how much it sucks, no matter how many times you do occasionally miss that weekend with your family because you're going through a fundraising or you're trying to convince someone to join your company or not to leave, that's just the fun parts, not the bad parts. So Joe, there's the synthesis of everything there is about where you are and where you're going. Love it. Yeah, that last part was very inspiring. So thank you. Yeah, loved it. And listen, I know that you're going to get the that'll never work if you haven't gotten it enough already, but that never stops because you're going to solve one problem and then you're going to see an even bigger one ahead of you. And that's why you've got to say, okay, it's a journey here. There's never a place where I really get to rest for too long. So figure out how to make your life balance work now, because the next time you'll get an opportunity, which is easier, is probably when you're uh, too old to do a lot of the stuff you want to do. So find it now. And believe me, worth every moment. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks, Mark. And, um, you know, I know on our end where where things are going and the that will never work thing. It's been since day one. So <laughs> and we've, we've checked a lot of those boxes now. Everything we've done was was impossible so to speak so far. So a lot of like our series A investors who understand what we do and they say, you guys are actually creating a new market. You're creating a new industry. Being able to go in and um, push some of those boundaries, it's a beautiful thing. And one of the most worthwhile parts about it all. I'm sure Copernicus, when he said the sun wasn't the center of the universe, had a, a couple ladders to climb <laughs> in terms of convincing people at the time that you know, he probably looked crazy uh, you know, for a little bit. But Eventually, we all said, okay, now that makes sense. The science is there. Really appreciate you taking the time, though, with all of this and yeah, talking through this. It's been a pleasure, Joe. And all you owe me is at some point, we'll touch base again in a number of months and we'll see how things are going with you. Awesome. In the meantime, Talk good luck me. and uh, thanks for spending some time with me today. Thank you. Bye-bye. It's always fun to reflect on all the cultural experiments we tried at Netflix. Some which are super successful that became part of what Netflix is today. And others, well, lessons learned. The most important takeaway is that different things work for different companies. Culture springs from who you are, not who you want to be. So being willing to engage with a few different approaches will always be key. And given Joe's willingness to take a fresh and empathetic approach to growing his company and super serving his staff, I think... 12 traces in great hands. But before we go, I'm curious what you thought about Joe's plans for building a better corporate culture and my advice to him. So I'd love for you to join me, Joe, and your other fellow listeners on my website where we'll be discussing this episode. You'll find us congregated at markrandolph.com forward slash podcasts. Just click on the appropriate episode and scroll to the bottom you want to discuss your business challenges with me, I would love to hear from you. Just visit me at markrandolph.com or call me at 1-888-MARK-POD. That's 1-888-627-2763. Together, we'll figure out your best next steps. In the meantime, if a 30-minute podcast is too much for you, you can check out my short-form ramblings on Twitter at M.B. Randolph. Or see it all prettied up on Instagram at That Will Never Work. Of course, you can check me out at LinkedIn at, well, shit, you can figure that out yourself. Thanks again for listening. If you like the podcast, don't forget to smash that like button and leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. If you didn't, well, thanks for listening to How I Built This. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. This is the That Will Never Work podcast. Thanks again, 
and I'll see you next time. Audiation.